to this episode of Moments in Leadership. I want to start off by quickly thanking some of the new supporters. Thomas Fiametta at the Hot Wash level. I'm sorry if I slaughtered that name. My Italian professor from college is probably spinning in her grave. Hunter Bartolo at the Hot Wash level. Brian Bierman at the Buy Me a Beer level. Very appropriately named last name for the Buy Me a Beer level. George Bednar with a one-month Buy Me a Beer. Really appreciate that. Shayla Hayward-Lundy, thank you so much. Corey Phillips at the Buy Me a Beer level. And then Major General Dale Alford. Thank you so much, sir, for sponsoring the project at the Hot Wash level. Really appreciate that endorsement as well as your contribution to some of the previous episodes. Sir, I hope you're enjoying retirement. I know I say this every time and I may sound like a little bit of a broken record, but writing a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or leaving a five-star rank on Spotify and subscribing on your favorite podcast player is a great way to help me. doesn't cost a dime. Did get a couple of great reviews I want to read real quick. I got a five-star review titled, Where Was This 20 Years Ago? Invaluable should be mandatory listening for all ranks. Focus listening at the schoolhouses and have a podcast of the day club like a book club at each unit. That was uh, left on March 5th, 23 by VCD523 on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much. Another one um, titled More Senior Enlisted, please. I was told about this podcast from a friend and I'm working my way through all the episodes. My request is to hear more senior enlisted Marines, master sergeants, and master gunnery sergeants, the men and women that normally don't do these type of interviews, but lead Marines every single day. I think that would be interesting to hear. Keep up the great work. Left on February 8th, 2023 by Jay Aiken, 0399 on Apple Podcasts. Hey man, I hear you. I, I keep asking people and either I get crickets when I send them an email and ask or I don't know what it is, but uh, yeah, I believe me, I am asking. I am just getting told no a lot. So sometimes no means not now, but I'll keep working on it. And finally, uh, last review I want to read, a truly amazing record of great military leaders' experiences. Moments in Leadership is a tremendous collection of memoirs and experiences of our military's greatest leaders. The long-form conversations immerse the listeners in the most critical moments that have formed the leadership styles of great Marines, sailors, soldiers, and airmen. I especially appreciate his conversation with Colonel Andy Milburn. I highly recommend the show to anyone who is looking for insights into the successes and failures of our top military minds left January 23rd by Captain Pag on Apple Podcast. Hope I got that name right. Okay, merchandise. I got the same merchandise up there. Some t-shirts, stickers. Link is also in the show notes. Hit me up if you're an artist and you want to collaborate on some art. I'm going to do something here in the spring. Uh, I want to do something new and fresh. An update on some upcoming guests. Lieutenant General Greg Newbold and Deputy Undersecretary of the Navy Vic Manila and Colonel Steve Davis, who is General Alfred's regimental commander in Iraq. They are all recorded and in editing. I've got Vice Admiral Bill Mertz, who is a submariner, is scheduled for recording later this month. I'm working with Comstrat Sergeant Major of the Marine Corps to come back on and do a final recap of his career as he moves out of his Sergeant Major of the Marine Corps role. And I'm still networking, like I said, to get some other senior enlisted on here as well. So any help there is appreciated. The best way to help is to actually get me an email address or make an introduction. Got uh, a hot wash recording coming up with most of the captains on March 30th. I'm working on a trip down to Fort Sill to check out some training and talk to lieutenants and the Marine detachment and the command down there. And I'm looking forward to that. And I'm going to try to get a recording done with the commanding officer down there of the Marine detachment at Fort Sill. 
As you know, I've recently joined forces to collaborate with the folks at Lethal Minds Journal. In addition to all of the great content creators there, there's a lot of great behind the scenes folks working as well. Special thanks and a shout out this week to Cyrus who absolutely crushed it with uh, editing this episode. So thanks a lot for that. You know, one of the big reasons I joined forces with them was to scale my efforts and generate some synergy with their efforts and to defer the costs associated with this project, which believe me are real. While my participation is a component of their revenue creation, I'm committed to taking money that's left over after all my costs are covered and donating it to several different veterans charities. PB Abate, the Station Foundation, and the Marine Corps Heritage Foundation are my three big ones. So with that, Lethal Minds Journal has a sponsorship with FieldSeats.com. Now, FieldSeats.com is this really cool e-commerce, federally licensed firearms dealer. But I think it's way cooler than that. What they do is they provide these virtual reviews on brand new firearms, optics, and gear. And at the end of each review, they give that item away to someone who has attended the virtual review. And each review has a limited number of seats available for purchase, so the chances of winning that giveaway at the end of the review are really good. So for example, they have seats available for reviews ranging from 20 bucks to sit in on a review for a brand new Smith & Wesson M&P Shield 2.0, all the way up to 60 bucks for reviewing and covering the new Trijicon on ACOG with RMR. Definitely give fieldseats.com a check out and enter to win one of those items that they're reviewing. And of course, there's a code, right? There's always a code and it's Lethal Minds. And with that code, Lethal Minds, you get 10% off your seat purchase for that virtual review. And you can also check them out on their Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube accounts, which all share the same name at field underscore seats for updates on other products in addition to some cool information that they share. And of course, there's the standard disclosure that all terms and conditions apply. But look, go check it out and figure out if it's a good fit for you. I think they're a good bunch of dudes and their sponsorship is helping support this project. So thanks. My guest for this episode needs no introduction as his previous episode is one of the most popular episodes so far. General Dave Furness is slated to retire in June and I'm really happy he made the time to come on for another chat with me to dive deeper into some of the leadership topics that we touched on in the first episode. So with that... Lieutenant General Dave Furness, welcome back to Moments of Leadership. It's really great to have you back on. Uh, you're only my second person to come back in for a second interview. I had Major General Dale Alford, of course, when he retired. But this is great because you and I talked for a really long time, and I feel like we could have gone for another two hours last time. So Yeah, I think leadership, uh, it's a passion that we all have. I mean, it's no surprise Dale came on again. You know, he's my longest friend in the Marine Corps and almost like a brother. It's a passion we share, so we like talking about it. Yeah, it's great. How's he doing? Good. I mean, he's starting to do the interview process, and he said he was going to take six months to hunt, and that's what he's done. He's just coming out of that phase and looking at uh, what's going to be next. So I think it's mostly going well for him. That's great. So are you retiring this summer, sir? I am. Yeah, my last day will be June 30th, but I come off the rolls on 1 September. Great. Any plans? You just can take some time off? Uh, I'm not going to take a lot of time off. I think uh, we're, the plan is to head to uh, uh, Tampa area. I've got children, uh, one in college and one launched and who lives in St. Petersburg. So we're going to move down in that area to be closer to them. 
Plus, we like the weather and the taxes and everything like that in Florida. So Yeah, everybody likes the taxes in Florida. <laughs> That's great. Well, I know you do a lot of talking over at TBS, and you have an occasion to, to see the lieutenants. I'm assuming every class you get in there. I'm curious. I'd like to start off today just by asking you, what questions are the lieutenants asking you these days? Well, I think, they, first of all, they, I've talked to every basic school company for the last two and a half years since I came back into the NCR area. What I talked to them about is a class I developed to explain, I call it leadership and discipline, but it's really about how to lead organizations and make organizations elite and the role of the leader in that process. And so it's a 90-minute class, and then we adjourn to the Hawkins room, and I will stay until they get tired of asking me questions. And, and it, normally I go in the afternoon. So that happens. We, we just move straight to the Hawkins room and then we've stayed there for hours. And the questions they ask, they're really good. They're very informed, probably a lot more than I was at a similar stage. You know, we I think my concerns were, could I master the O course and land nav and <laughs> shoot the rifle well enough? And and then just the basics that, you know, you would ask about tactical things. They're, la they're asking about strategic policy, force design, and, and also, you know, leadership, hypothetical questions about scenarios that they might face upon entering the operational forces. But they're really good questions, and uh, I enjoy uh, the discussion that ensues from them. Yeah, I got a chance to get down there. I've been down there a couple times over the past 12 months one was to visit when Lieutenant General Bellin was speaking. And so I got to see the interaction that, that you're referring to where they have the whole class and they stand up and they ask questions. And I echo your sentiment. I don't think that anybody in my TBS class had the stones to ask the kind of questions that, that, that they're asking. I mean, I think we would have gotten in trouble for asking the kind of questions that they're asking now. They're, it's such an informed generation. And it's interesting to me that every single question that I heard was grounded in some sort of, you know, why, why, why this, why that. I thought it was great. I like to see that confidence. It was, it was fantastic. I went to a mess night down there, which is great. I'm sure you've been asked to be a guest of honor down there. That was fantastic because I've, you know, you forget. I told the lieutenant system, like, this is the last time you will be in a room with 250 other lieutenants at a mess night. You'll never do this ever again. Yeah, TBS is, is completely different. So you go over to the Hawkins room and I know you probably get in there and, and there's some time at some point where you're talking to the company staff or the SBCs. How about the captains? What are, what are they asking you and talking to you about? Is it different than the lieutenants? Most of the interaction is just with the lieutenants. And quite frankly, I talk to the staff briefly before I talk to the company. And pretty much it's just me thanking them for what they do. I was an SPC. I know how hard that job is, how much of your time you have to devote to these young officers to develop them. And so I'm just thanking them for their service. I mean, the company staffs now, are they're enlisted and officer. Like when we went through... I mean, when I was a student and when I was an SPC, you had a commander, an XO, and then a staff platoon commander, one per, per every platoon. You now have a host of enlisted sergeant staff sergeants in the company. So these officers have firsthand view of enlisted Marines and, and an understanding probably because of that far greater than we had when we left. 
And I think that's that's a very positive development. Of course, it has a personnel cost to that. It's a big staff for a student company. But and like I tell them, like no other service invests as much in the leader development process up front as a Marine Corps does. I mean, well, number one, you know, the basic course is, you know, 26, 27 weeks. And that's just teaching officership. And then you go to where you're going to learn your skill. And that can be, I mean, IOC now, when, when I went through as a lieutenant, I think it was nine weeks. I mean, when I taught, I think it was 10 and now it's 15. It's much more difficult course. And I think they come out of it far better prepared through the entire process. Obviously, infantry has the shortest follow-on school of almost any MOS. So whether you're a communicator, a pilot, how, what have you, or you go to an artillery officer basic at uh, Fort Sill, which for the Army is their whole TBS and MOS school. It's just an MOS school for uh, Marine officers. But we spend a lot of time making sure that you, they understand how we intend them to lead organizations. But on the backside of that, you're still a novice and you need development. And so really the vital people in that transformation are your first company grade officer that you report to. In my case, it was a company, a rifle company commander. And then your first staff NCO that kind of takes you under the wing and, and translates education and training into experience. And so that's a vital step. And I've known peers of mine who had great experiences like I did. And then I've known others who had horrible first experiences. And that can set you on a, you know, totally different path, depending on how bad a, a, of an experience it was. I mean, <laughs> right. you know, I've seen people that just came out of that and did not trust enlisted Marines and staff NCOs. And I think that's a shame because, you know, that's the exact opposite of my experience. And so I think the developmental process initially, which essentially takes between schooling and that first tour, you know, four years, is so critical to setting you on a path that's going to determine how you lead the organization. So, you know, my class to them is, and I'm giving it this Friday, actually, to warrant officers, which are a little bit different because they have a lot more experience, but is really, you know, what you need to do to your organization to make it competent to build its proficiency and, and make it an elite organization. And we talk about how to do that in the central role of individual and then organizational discipline in that process. And so that drives some of the questions, but the questions afterwards are far range. I mean, they, they ask everything about China <laughs> and Russia, the war in Ukraine. They ask macroeconomic questions and you have to be on your toes with them. They're very bright. You leave with a sense that these young people that are going to be the next generation of leaders in the institution uh, are very bright. They're very inquisitive. And so the, the organization is going to be in, in, in good hands if we take this raw talent and continue to develop it throughout. I agree with that. It's interesting to me because over the course of this project, one of the things I've learned is that the product, I'll call it, and I think you've said this before, I know General Alford said it before. I think Sergeant Major Reynolds said this before which is when a second lieutenant comes to their unit, they are a quality product. The Marine Corps to that point has created a quality product, whether it's an infantry officer, a supply officer, an artillery officer coming out of Fort Sill. 
that second lieutenant is a fantastic product. It's just missing the experience. And when I say experience, I, I also mean the interaction with the enlisted Marines. And you mentioned before that TBS now has the embedded enlisted Marine in each platoon, which is new to me. I don't know how long that's going on. I didn't know that until I went down there for a mess night. What a fantastic idea that is, because we've all heard the jokes, right? So, you know, what's the most dangerous thing in the world? The second lieutenant in a compass and ha ha ha. And the lieutenant's lost again and all that. But if you cut through some of that joking around, if the enlisted Marines think that there's a problem with the lieutenant, my, my immediate question would be like, well, what are you doing to fix it? Because they're coming to you as a quality product. And if you're if you're just sitting around making fun of them, how about the opposite, which is hey, why don't you grab and be like, hey, sir, can I, let me share some experience or whatever. I don't know if they want to do that, but I think if more of that was going on, these lieutenants would, would get that experience so much faster. First of all, I think the most dangerous thing is a second lieutenant with a map and compass is just pure nonsense. I'm not saying that there's not some knuckleheads out there, but again, we spend an inordinate amount of time, and I'm, I'm not as familiar with the POI uh, as I once was when I was a teacher, but land navigation is still one of the largest packages that we teach at the basic school. And that land nav course at TA-16, I've been on a lot of land nav courses in my life. That's probably one of the most challenging one in the Department of Defense. I agree. I, I remember how hard that was. Particularly depending on what time of year you negotiated. If you're in the summer, there are few places on earth which as dense a foliage as Quantico, Virginia, in, in some of those training areas, which essentially has been pristine wilderness for over a hundred years. So we we train them really well in those hard skills. And we also try to educate them as far as, you know, in every place, every time you like TBS, that ratios far more on the training than the education. And then you go to EWS, you get a little bit more education, but still hard skill training. Command and staff is far more education than training. War college, way more education than training. So that ratio is adjusted throughout your career. But an officer's development in formal school process is fairly significant. I've spent a fair amount of years just learning the craft, and that doesn't touch upon what you do on your own. And, you know, one of the things I always try to impart to them is the professionalism required to lead organizations. And most of that development's on you. So how inquisitive are you? How much of a student of the profession are you going to be? You determine that, not the institution. The institution will hit you four or five times in a 30-year career, but the predominant amount of study is self-study. And so it's a requirement if you want to be value added at all these different stages of a leader. And I've always felt like if I couldn't add value to the organization, which with what I brought to it, as far as what I know and what I tried to teach the organization to improve the skill set of all those involved, then it's probably time to exit the pattern and go home. I still feel even though I'm going home, I could still do that. But I mean, at some point you got to leave. So that's the point I'm at. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, sooner or later, the Marine Corps tires of us all. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I remember when I got out and okay, not that I'm somebody to give a three-star general advice, but I'll just throw this out there. <laughs> 
really? I take it from everybody. Okay. okay. Uh, how, about, how about I rephrase it? Let me share my experience with you, sir. Just remember every single minute of the last day in uniform. I remember driving off the base. I remember my final salute. I remember getting in my car. And I'm, I'm really glad that I paid attention to those things because you just sort of... You can get caught up in the moment and just get out. But, you know, sir, kind of staying on that subject of leadership at the company grade, there was this great article that I read recently in the November 22 issue of Proceedings, and it was written by a Marine captain, Michael Hansen. I think he's in 3-4 right now. Uh, I think he's a company commander, but he wrote this article called Lead from the Front, question mark, not always. And in it, he writes, and, and if you don't mind indulging me, I'm just going to read the little paragraph that he wrote. New leaders are institutionally conditioned to lead from the front. But slogans such as lead by example, lead from the point of friction, and most prominently lead from the front can be misleading. Taken too literally, these sayings can constitute bad advice. They can cause new leaders to confuse their purpose. Should a unit leader walk point on a patrol? Should a unit leader be the one to kick in the door or be the first Marine to make entry into a hostile building? Should a leader be the first member of his unit to go over the top? or to cross the wide danger area under fire. Many young leaders would emphatically say yes. Experience tells us, however, they should emphatically say no. Is there any time in your past where you recall that feeling becoming obvious to you? Or can you tell a story to listeners that conveys if you learned that lesson yourself? You know, even before I was commissioned, I was fortunate enough to meet a guy named Dick Lewis, who retired as a colonel, but he was a Vietnam era Marine, a friend of my dad's. And he had been Chesty Puller's son's company commander in Vietnam. And so was there when he was severely wounded. And it reiterated that the burden of being Puller's son, the way it manifested itself in him was... He did all those things. He walked point. He was the first person in the village. I mean, and so he put himself at grave risk. There's a tension always in combat between where the leader is going to place himself in order to sense the ebbs and flows of the fight. Sometimes you're going to have to inject yourself to keep something moving that is stalled or redirect its activities. And because you may have more situational awareness because you've got a radio in your ear, you got, depending on the level of command, people around you that are feeding you additional information. So at that point, you know, you may have to go to the point of friction and steer the organization in the right direction or halt it or kick it in the rear and get it moving. And those are all appropriate instances, situations where, you know, leading from the front and not being afraid to do that and showing the courage, both physical and moral, to do that is required. Now, if you're just doing it to put yourself in the most dangerous situation, I mean, you have to understand, I mean, a leader should be the most proficient person in that organization. You know, they develop the plan. They know it best. They are plugged into higher headquarters and losing a leader is never, you know, it shouldn't be a fatal thing to an organization. You should always strive to add depth because we're in a dangerous business and people get hurt and killed. And, and so you have to have a succession there. You have to talk about it so people know if I go down, this is what you do. But the organization is far better off with you than without you. So there's a balance that leaders have to do. They can't be afraid to share risk. You know, I've done that in certain fights where you just go to the front and expose yourself. I think the Marines want to see that, but you've got to be judicious with it because, again, especially 
battalion and, and regiment, you're you're going around and you will expose yourself far more often in more varied situations. A lot of times you come into a fight and you know what's going on, but you may not know all the particulars of it. So you've got to ease into that situation, not run headlong into it a lot of times. And I think, you know, if we always say lead from the front and expose yourself, that's all true. You got to be able to do that. But there's a balance and a natural tension there. It's not all the time. It requires judgment and application. And I think over time, the sensing of the battlefield will allow you to understand when you've actually got to influence it physically, like by the physical presence of your person and the whole, you know, follow me has to happen. And where you can monitor it, you know, send a runner up and, and, and kind of sit back and, and be a little bit more objective objective about what's going on. And when you're head down in the HUD in a fight, I mean, you don't really see the whole thing. I mean, literally, your battle could be like right, you know, right here. And so having some distance, that distance may be 100 meters or 200 meters, gives you a sense of like what else is going on and a better feel for how to influence it. Because a lot of times a leader can influence it by supporting arms, you know, repeating a series or calling a target or directing an aviation platform, listening to the interchange between the pilot who has a better overhead view of what's going on to influence, okay, you know, this is what's actually happening. Because reports coming over a radio, first of all, can be just dead ass wrong. And you've got to be able to have a sense of how you filter those before you jump right in and act on the first report. So it's a touchy subject. The extreme is being a Chateau General, First World War, or General Friedenau in the in the Battle of Kasserine Pass where you never leave your, your CP. That's one extreme. And the other extreme is walking point all the time. And the law of averages are going to kick in and you're probably going to get hurt. If you just want to get hurt rather than leading Marines, hey, walk point. But I don't know that you're doing your organization due diligence if that's your default position. It's a balance. And I think the more you understand the profession, how do I learn that? Well, I talk to countless countless Vietnam veterans. I read countless descriptions of engagement. So you get a feel from both of those kind of oral history and written history of the profession. Okay, this is what you, you will experience. These are things you need to take into consideration. And, you know, and other people say, well, this is the best thing to do. And you just have to try some of these things to feel out how you are going to manage that tension between having information and being where the information can be most useful to you and then physically influencing an action where your presence is, is probably needed. I don't know if that makes sense or not. It does, sir. And I think that's the point that he was getting at. I mean, he said in the article emphatically, no, but I would imagine that he's suggesting that there be some balance to it. But you're right, because an officer's job isn't to go out and walk points. It's not. It's not to say you shouldn't do it. I think one of the, my fears with all of this, like there is a delusion that unmanned aerial systems and all the ints that you can suck in and push down to the micro tactical level are going to have the effect of you're going to know what to do 
because you have a, you know, a much better sense of what you're facing. Fog, friction, uncertainty, fear are still going to be out there. And technology, it will not solve that at all. You're going to have to figure that out. And so this tension is always going to exist. I think the, the fear I have is that people wait for the perfect information scenario where they will act and they may be missing opportunities because they are head down in a HUD, so to speak, looking at a flat screen somewhere, whether that's a tablet strapped to their chest or on their wrist or somebody's feeding them what they're seeing from over their shoulder. It's still going to be a highly intuitive, especially at sergeant, lieutenant, staff sergeant level of warfare that you're going to have to sense the environment around you, make decisions in a very time and dangerous competitive environment where all of these factors are going to influence that. And so I don't want anybody to take away, well, unmanned systems, space-based sensors, all that fused and pushed down are somehow going to alleviate the small unit leader from dealing with uncertainty, fear, you know, the fear of not accomplishing the mission, the fear of doing something wrong, the fear of making a decision that could lead to the death and dismemberment of a fellow Marine. All of that's going to be present. You will have to move through that. And my predilection and how I've always, you know, you, you train yourself by making endless decision games and putting yourself on the dime in decision exercises to be comfortable making decisions with very little information and under time constraints. And then you make decisions and constantly assess the environment and adjust those decisions when required to get to eventually a decision that leads to a positive outcome. But if you wait for the perfect time to make the one decision that will lead to a positive outcome, I think you miss a lot of opportunities along the way. That could be very lethal. Yeah, there's that saying, and I didn't invent it, but I use it all the time, which is don't let perfect be the enemy of good enough with decision making. And sometimes you just need to, I think as officers, we're paid to make timely decisions based on the best information possible and then adjust your decisions from there. But what was really interesting is I was listening to you answer that question. You were talking about the Marine with the tablet on its chest and kind of getting sucked into the vortex of technology and waiting for the best information. And, and it dawned on me when you said that, that the more senior you get in rank, the more likely actually you are to get sucked. So, you know, like, sir, when you're a regimental commander, are you out there with a pair of binos or, or are you watching data coming across screens in a COC somewhere? And so is that almost better information for Marines to remember, for leaders anywhere to remember as they get more senior? Probably. I mean, I think as a regimental commander, I had four infantry battalions, an artillery battalion, a combat logistics battalion, and we were spread over a state of Connecticut in a battle space that's very large. We had 204 positions. And so you're going out there to try to see how those people are executing your orders. So most of my day, and I would go out for weeks at a time, was spent visiting, looking at, patrolling with. So you do both in the sense that like while on in my vehicle, I was monitoring all the Merc chat windows of every organization, uh, the battalions there. So you kind of got the feel of what's going on by the reports coming in. But once you're on the ground and you're patrolling with a squad or you come down into the company and look at what they're looking at and then go out and see certain things, you're sensing all the physical attributes that you've learned through 25 plus years of, of the profession. And so when you have all those reps and sets, it allows you to assess things much quicker, like what's going on. And those reps and sets can be the physical reps and sets you get from the number of months in command and the number of months in combat that you 
have under your belt. It could be the classes you've attended, the TDGs you've done, the books you've read. All of that is fused by your brain and to be able to sense and make sense and then decide and act. And that personal OODA loop is always spinning and you get comfortable with it. Like I, you know, my Sergeant Major, Brian Zikafus, who's like the best Marine I've ever known. We used to challenge each other who could come up with what the hell is going on here uh, before <laughs> the other one. It didn't take us very long to assess situations because we literally seen thousands and thousands of these situations over the course of the career. So you're, you're quick to understand what makes sense of it. And then, okay, here are my options. You know, what's being done now? Can I help this guy? Do I need to stand back? Is my personal presence going to freak this kid out or, you know, help him? You know, and then you, you go do it. But it, it's a balance, again, head in the HUD and then the physical sensing of it to make sense of the environment. You got to do both and have find a way to do both. Yeah, I think that balance must change over time because it's interesting. And again, I'm just thinking, but Sergeant Major Sikafus, he was your Sergeant Major when you had the regiment, just for listeners. Yes. Right, because we started off by talking about, you know, is it your job to lead from the front? And it's easy for a lieutenant to run down and see what's happening in a squad. It's harder for a company commander to run down to a platoon and see what's going on, but it can be done. It's even harder for a battalion commander to run down to a company. And so at some point, there's this inflection in leadership and action and decision-making and balance where the regimental commander just can't run down and see what's going on at the first squad or first platoon of Alpha Company, first battalion. It's just too hard. Do you remember a time where you kind of realized that, geez, you know, my my paradigm of leadership has really changed and, and I am more of a manager of assets run by other people than I am what's actually happening on the ground? Did that, did that ever dawn on you or, did, or was it something you realized afterwards? I think I always wanted to be both the battalion where you experience that. A company, you can still like follow me. I mean, I think it's still a lot of follow me leadership at that level. My experience was back then companies were more concentrated than dispersed. Leading any dispersed organization, you're leading by intent. And when you show up at a particular place, you want to be value added. So for instance, if a company commander shows up to a dispersed or disaggregated part of his organization, a platoon, he brings a FAC, he brings FOs that could leverage additional resources for that organization. So first of all, when I showed up, I wanted them to know, hey, the lieutenant colonel or colonel brings a lot of punch with him. And if I need something, I mean, he's going to be able to get it for me. And so first of all, you get out and you insert yourself. It's like you have to know, OK, what do I got up in the air? both unmanned to look, unmanned armed to strike and look, fixed wing and rotary wing and close air support. You know, we're under the fire fans of X and Y. Do I have a priority target that's set? And I can redirect assets. Like I can say, okay, wait a minute, this fight is bigger than anybody knows about. I'm here now. Okay, so look, shift priority to this organization, move a line of ISR down here right now and help this situation by adding additional resources to it. Or you may assess, hey, he's got the thing under control. I'm just going to sit back and watch him do his job. One time I could see we were in a tick. The organization was a tick. I had some distance from it. This is your regimental commander time? 
Yes. Yes. Okay. And in this fight, you know, the typical being fired at from a compound that was obviously abandoned and the Taliban had taken over. And I knew that there was Ospreys inbound to the firm base. So I got on the hook to the, our higher headquarters and asked to use that air platform for 30 mics. You know, could you spare it? Yes, we could. So what we did is that I directed the company commander load 24 Marines on that damn thing and insert them at this location, which was in the rear of the compound, like a stride where these guys would have to run. And just simply that one activity, they saw what was happening, tried to leave. And then it was just, we killed every one of them. And that's a case where just my sense of what was going on and knowing that this was a possibility, hey, this will complicate the enemies, the way they're going to fight significantly. So let's try to do that. And bingo, success ensued. So that's what you try to do for like subordinate units to show them it's a good thing when the colonel arrives because he brings a lot of power. And if we're in a bad way, he can fix things quickly with resources that we can't tap into as easily. There could be a challenge there, too, because I remember if I'm thinking back, if the colonel showed up, I was probably getting my ass chewed for something. It wasn't to help me out. So I do think that when younger leaders see the senior people show up, they're like, oh, man, he's only here because something's wrong. And I'm probably going to get my butt chewed. I think back when we were young, you didn't really see a lot of our senior leaders a lot out. I mean, we were in the field, so maybe that was the case. But look, I'm not going to tell you I didn't pull people aside and say, you need to fix this, 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 and this. Because again, when you're dispersed like that, you know, the level of supervision goes down to, in some cases, a very young corporal or sergeant with not a lot of reps. So now when you're correcting people, it's all about how you do it. If you show them what they're doing, like, here's why this is problematic. Here's why you need to fix this. Here's what you need to do here. And a lot of it was coaching them to success, more like a position coach or a father would. But you're, you're hey, look, I'm going to be back here in two weeks. And if this is still the way it is today, this conversation is a totally different conversation. And you won't be very happy with it. And in some cases, I told, you know, leaders, like, if I come back and it looks like this, I'm relieving you. Okay, because Marines are not training aides. And if you can't get up on plane fast enough, I'll get you a new job because combat, you don't have a lot of time to teach, coach and mentor because you're executing. And it's all about accomplishing a mission, take care of the Marines. And if you have somebody who can't do either one of those things well, or, you know, they're going to put Marines at risk because of professional malfeasance, it's your obligation to fix that problem. But again, that's where judgment comes in the way you do it. I'm not a big believer in screaming and yelling. Have I raised my voice in tone and sharpness? Absolutely. I, I I've done less of that as I become more senior because just your presence can have the effect. You don't need to add the theatrics most of the time to get the result you want. And I've also known because leaders have done that to me and it's just like, I didn't appreciate it very much. Like we could have had a conversation and I would have performed just as well as this exchange that was a little bit more tense, probably more so than it needed to be. So you're constantly learning how to execute your craft better. And I, I just find it's hey, a professional to professional point aside. Here's what you need to do. This is why this is important. This is what I need to see the next time. Don't do these things. Do you understand? Yes, sir. Okay, let's go. 
Yeah. It's funny because we started the podcast out by just talking about TBS real quick. And when I meet young leaders now from doing this project, they'll tend to ask me questions now too, which I feel incredibly unqualified to answer. (laughs) Just because I run this thing doesn't mean I have great answers, but they'll tend to throw my questions back at me. And question somebody asked me last time I was down at TBS was, is there anything that you would do over again, you know, given your kind of experience and your perspective on things? And it's what you just said, sir. It's I would go back and tell Lieutenant Captain Armstrong to just don't yell. Just use your presence and talk to other leaders, man to man, man, whatever, person to person, and just say, hey, here are my expectations. God, I wish I yelled less. I think that's a very important point. I I would tell you, if they may be commandant of the Marine Corps for a day, I would seriously consider changing aspects of recruit training and removing all of the theatrical yelling and screaming and beating trash cans and all that nonsense. And the reason why would be, I think what it does for the majority of Marines is teach them that that's the way you lead. And it also, some of the more physical attributes contribute, I believe, to modeling behavior that eventually for the untrained and less educated in the sense of professional military education of our Lance Corporals, Corporals, and so it leads to hazing. It it contributes to that problem, which is still a problem. And so if you look at the British Royal Marines, they execute the commando course and they don't really do all that. They put the onus on the platoon, do this. If they don't, there's a penalty. And I'm not saying the penalty wouldn't be, okay, we're going to go over here and we're going to work out for 15 to 20 minutes to teach you a lesson about sense of urgency. But I'm not going to raise my voice. It's more going to be like more controlled, less people circling around like great white sharks on a seal kill, stereoing, uh, as we used to call it, individuals who aren't performing well. It's all about, we told you to do this, you didn't do this, we're holding you accountable for that, and this is the way we're doing it. And so there is a negative repercussion for failure to accomplish the mission. Boom. Okay, let's get up. Okay, let's go on to the next task. Here it is. And I think we could be much more professional at it. And maybe over time, we would wean ourselves out of this hazing problem. Look, I get it. We have most of our forces under the age of 25 and males, so the frontal lobe's not closed. They make really bad decisions at that age. If you have kids, you know what I'm talking about. But I think we contribute to it by how we act around them in a very impactful early phase of their development. Because if you ask any Marine, tell me, Lance Corporal and below, who's the greatest leader? they'll probably talk about their senior drill instructor right or their heavy a or whatever and they want to be like that and so to model they scream do all those things when they're in a team leader or squad leader billet well those people touch 90 percent of the marines in the marine corps and so if you have a bad interpretation of what has happened, and I don't think, I mean, I know we dealt with it with having phase four after the crucible, we call them Marines. It's kind of a transition period to your MOS school. But I just think by that point, it's probably too late. They have already learned or internalized lessons that aren't going to be helpful to them. Now, I wouldn't do it arbitrarily. I would bring in senior enlisted leadership to discuss this, but I would really look hard at doing something that <laughs> revolutionary, you know, which a lot of people would say, and I wouldn't lessen the standards. In fact, I'm all for increasing physical standards among those cohorts and mental standards as well. And hey, you didn't do it. We're going to repeat it. You didn't do it. You're going to repeat it. Okay, you did it. Okay, we can move on. 
making it more difficult, but less arbitrary and more professional. I think that's a really interesting topic. Can we stay on that for a minute? Because listening to you, I think back, okay, young civilian Dave Armstrong, 18 years old, joins ROTC, right? I show up one day. I'm getting yelled at by a Marine gunnery sergeant who was an 0369, right, just off the drill field. And there's a Marine major there who reminded me of that, the movie with Cuba Gooding Jr. when he was trying to become the diver and the dive supervisor just standing up on his platform the whole time. That's what I kind of remember my major doing. And I'm getting yelled at, right? So, see, my dogs are yelling. I mean, everybody's yelling. <laughs> so, and it's yelling and it's getting yelled at to correct me. And then I don't know any better. I'm 18 years old. So what do I equate with leadership? It's the way that gunnery sergeant was acting. And then the way the seniors in ROTC were acting, which was mimicking the gunnery sergeant. And by the way, they were mimicking the Marines that were in charge of them at OCS because they had just graduated from OCS. Yeah. So you get evaluated at 18 years old based on three things. What are your grades? What's your physical fitness score? And how well can you take charge by having a command presence, right? And what's a command presence to an 18 to 20? It's yelling. Then you go to OCS and you get yelled at. Then you go to TBS and you get yelled at. And so your entire career, all you've ever been exposed to is that leadership is yelling at people and having a command presence and all that. And then you go out and now you're a lieutenant. And what are you doing? Yeah, you model that same behavior. I was fortunate in our basic school class, you know, Major Tuggle, who was our company commander, told us right up front that he was going to treat us as young officers. And so there wasn't a lot of yelling. In fact, I don't ever remember my SPC raising his voice or others doing that. But we were held accountable. And so it was a very good environment to learn and be molded into. But I will tell you, I mean, I went to VMI. I mean, we (laughs) I yelled for four years. I mean, (laughs) and so I was more quick to tune my voice up and be, you know, senior drill instructor, gunnery sergeant for NAS, vice lieutenant for NAS. And I think you learn to like, okay, that that's really not the tool I need. In fact, you know, one of the things where I made mistakes was I did that under the gaze of Major Chris Stokes, my, my company commander, who I revere to this day. And he pulled me aside and very calmly told me, that, hey, I don't want you to act like that. I thought the world of this guy, so you don't want to disappoint him. And so a lot of times, if you're a company coming over above, you just pull somebody aside and say, I'm disappointed in you for these reasons. Here's what you need to do better. That has more of an impact than if you, you know, you see somebody yelling and you yell at him to stop yelling. I mean, it can spiral out of control. He pulled me aside. It was a very low conversation that no one else heard. I got the message, okay, and really modified my behavior because it was part of it was language I was using and part of it was tone and tenor. And so you learn to be a better leader because a really good leader helped coach you at that stage. So that's a role of leaders and that never ends. I mean, when you're a battalion commander, you're probably in that position because you were a really good company commander. The battalion I was in as a company commander, two of the five company commanders became battalion commanders. So the pyramid starts to winnow itself out. The step from 05 to 06, and I always tell 06, I just went to NDU and talked with people getting ready to make the jump from 05 command to 06 eventually. Hey, look, you're leading guys the institution has screened. They've commanded at the company level, battalion level, been really good at it. 
you can guide them, not put your hands on them. I mean, when you're a company commander, you're leading young officers, you're really in a teaching role of how to be a Marine leader. And then as a battalion commander, Nobody screens and evaluates company commanders. I mean, everybody gets a turn at the plate, you know? And so when you got time, you got to get down there and educate them. Now, my experience as a battalion commander was you didn't have time because we were going on short turns into combat. Now the stakes are much higher. Like you're just going to go to Okinawa and do a UDP and train in Korea and maybe the Philippines, Thailand. You can afford to coach more. But when it's like, I don't want that guy out of my sight with 200 Marines because I just don't think he gets it, get rid of him. And that's a tough call because the first time you have to do that, you know, you're essentially ending somebody's time in the Marine Corps. They won't be promoted to major. They're going to have to transition. You don't take that step lightly. But the default position is the Marines are more important than anybody's career. So if you believe, based on your education, training, experience, that they're not up to that task, you don't have time to coach them, you have to make a really tough call. When I was a captain, nobody got fired. When I was a battalion commander, I don't know another battalion commander that didn't have to get rid of at least one company commander. Really? Oh, yeah. Interesting. So I just think as the stakes go up, you don't have the time and you have to make those difficult calls. People made the calls. It's tough. And some of them are snap based on, you know, hey, this is what we said we were going to do. You didn't do it. You're going to be 80 miles from me someplace executing my intent. I can't afford that. You're gone. Boom. You know, that puts stress on the institution because they got to get you another player. But the Marines deserve the best leaders that the institution can provide them. Your job as a battalion commander is to teach, coach, mentor, but then also evaluate. And if somebody's not going to be able to do the job, and that's part of your responsibility is that assessment, then if you don't have time to coach them out of that because there's too great a risk on the young men and women under their command, get rid of them. Right. What, what are some of those traits that you see derail leaders or cause them to fail? Well, I'm an infantry officer, so I have a very narrow paradigm, but I saw people that lacked confidence in their ability to make quick decisions, and that's lethal on the battlefield. So the one instance I had, it was the officer was just disinterested in being around the Marines and training them. And so what I saw in peacetime was they'd be running live fire and maneuver ranges, and this guy wouldn't be with them. And I told him, no, you need to be with them, okay? Your job is to coach them to enhance their execution and professionalism. And if you're not there, you're not coaching. So it was repeated several times. I'm like, you're not getting what I need you to do. So eventually you had to remove them. But I think lack of proficiency, especially in the infantry MOS, a lot of times it's this lack of physical endurance and prowess that allows them to lead because it's a very physical, especially at the platoon and company level, you're leading with a green meanie in your cargo pocket and a pack on your back, most likely with a radio in it. And if you can't do that, then you're a liability. And the fact that one of my leaders has a saying, you know, that I've always told people is a, a strong mind doesn't grow in a weak body. And in our MOS, like what Patton was saying, where he said fatigue makes cowards of us all, it means if you get fatigued, if your level of endurance is not such that you can maintain it over time in a combat environment, you will get run down and you will make bad decisions. So the physicality of the leader is important in this MOS 
especially at the company level. You know, when I checked into 3-4, and we may have talked about that last time with General Rollins, Lieutenant Colonel Rollins then said, hey, you got to know your stuff, you got to be physically fit, and you got to take care and listen to your Marines. Three things. Always remember them like he talked to me 15 minutes ago. And you did. You mentioned that in our first episode. And you mentioned Chris Stokes, too, just as a reminder to you there. You talked about the opposite side of it, too, where you talked about how he just walked up to you and said, you did a good job there, Dave. We were talking about the award system, and you said, hey, sometimes the award is just a great pat on the back from a great leader. Right. You know, all of us want to do well and want to be told we're doing well. And I don't care if that's a great PowerPoint brief or a good attack or you handle that situation well. And sometimes it's what a leader will tell your spouse when you're not around. And your spouse says, well, you know, hey, they said this about you. And there's many ways to kind of to do that. But I think we're too frequent to punish and infrequent to praise. And I think you got to remember that. And you can build a lot of goodwill, loyalty, commitment by just when you're happy with what someone's done, tell them that. Right. On the previous thing is those kind of traits, like you don't know what to do. You're not really able to do it in harsh conditions for long periods of time. And then three, kind of a, an attitude about your Marines that's not, well, I will call it this, a sense that you don't love them and aren't willing to look out for their welfare, that they're not like your sons and daughters. If I get a sense of that as a leader, I'm like, I don't want you in my organization. Right. One of the things I preach down at Quantico is... I play an audio clip from General Mattis, and he says, you really got to love your Marines. If you don't love them, you really ought to get out of this business because we are in the ultimate people business. And in the Marine Corps, it's all about the people and the team. Mm -hmm. The people make up the team. If you don't like the players, if you really don't love them, if you're not looking out for their best interest, if you don't know what their goals, dreams, aspirations are in the Marine Corps or post-Marine Corps, and work hard to try to help them fulfill them, then you're not the kind of leader people are going to go out of their way to go the extra mile for. Right. You show me a really great Marine organization, it's the collective is going above and beyond what's required. You show me an average one, they just do what's expected because I'll do X so I don't get yelled at. Well, those are not going to be high performing organizations. What's the difference? Normally, it's a leadership team that care about their people so much much. They're involved in their people. They know who they are. They know that their parents divorced when they were six. They never had a relationship with their father. They joined the Marine Corps because they were looking for that male leader that they could tie into that would mentor them. Mm -hmm. And then you're being that for that kid. And then you're helping that young man or woman achieve something. You're telling them they did good when they did it. And they revere you to this day. And you get texts, you get LinkedIn pop-ups when they find you. You get emails out of the blue, phone calls, and it can be everything from, hey, sir, I just had my first kid. I remember these lessons that you taught me back in Hotel 28, Kilo 3711, First Marines, CJTF HOA, Second Mardiv. It doesn't matter. You don't even remember you did these things, but it's just, you got to be the person that just cares about them all the time, is trying to make their life and their journey better. And part of that is you're going to make them a better Marine, but really going to make them better person first. Right. 
because that's really what they joined the Marine Corps for. Because again, I believe this at the bottom of my heart. General Krulak said, Marines, we win battles and we make Marines. And then most of those Marines become American citizens. And so that journey and making them a better person while you're making them a better Marine translates into a better American citizen that's good for the Republic. And so I think the importance of leadership and the privilege is being a part of that journey. And if you're not passionate about it, if that doesn't just get you all excited to get up and interact with your young Marines and sailors, then you probably need to do something else. Because look, this is a low paying outfit. You can make more money almost anywhere. Go do something else where the stakes aren't as high. Yeah. Because these guys and gals that you lead, you're going to tell them to do things that are going to get them killed. There has to be a relationship established for them to willingly want to do that. So I think a key fault is a leader, whether they think that it's professional distance or their interpretation of being a stoic, they don't want to interact or they're not comfortable interacting with young men and women. I just don't think they're going to be a very effective leader in our organization because especially at that platoon and company level, there's a ton of interaction. That's the funnest days you'll ever spend in this organization because you touch more Marines, you know them better, you're part of their lives, you you know when they get married, when they have kids, when they achieve something, you're there to watch it, and it's the most fulfilling. And as you get higher up, you've got to find ways to get down and interact with that level, mostly for your own mental health. <laughs> you know, like right. You get a sense of purpose in the organization. Dale and I call that touching a person's soul. You got to touch their soul, change the trajectory of their life experience for the better, and then watch that occur. And that brings untold joy to your life. That's the good stuff about being a leader is when you can actually be a part of it, see it happen. And then they, years later, give you credit for stuff you didn't even know you did while you were trying to touch their soul. And I just think that the main element of a poor leader is the lack of connection there between the people of the organization and top of it. Right. You focus their efforts. You give them purpose. You inspire them to greater effort. You discipline them when appropriate. But even when you do that, there's a way to teach in that process. And the only time you get really angry or abrupt with them is when you feel that they've quit. They don't aspire to be the Marine they said they were going to be when they joined the organization. And you've tried to inspire, you've coached, you've worked with them, and that hasn't, they're back here for the second or third time. Okay. Then you remove them from the organization because they're more a cancer than anything else. And you have to do that. But the vast, vast majority of Marines and sailors want to excel, want to believe in honor, courage, commitment. It's your job to inspire them. Because when their drill instructor put that eagle globe and anchor in their hand, they were true believers. Not only that, but there probably wasn't a dry eye in the platoon when they got that put in their palm. Absolutely. It's one of the most emotional moments you can ever witness as a Marine, those emblem ceremonies. Mm -hmm. And so that's the hardest thing they've ever worked for in their life. Yeah. They want to be part of this organization. So your job... Corporal, sergeant, staff sergeant, lieutenant, captain, gunny, is to keep them inspired 
the way they felt when they first put that emblem. And we lose some along the way because we don't invest enough of our time in getting to know them, understanding where they come from, helping them through difficulties that we don't even know about. Mm -hmm. Right. Everybody has a story. You just don't know it. It's your job as a leader to know the stories of your men and women you lead. That takes time. They're not going to tell you at first you have to establish that you care. They have to believe in you as a leader. Then trust is established. They will start to unburden themselves. You need them to tell your story because you've got baggage as well. And now there's mutual understanding and a belief that I'll do everything this individual tells me to do to the best of my ability because I know they have my best interest at heart. They care about me. And you may be the first person that's ever cared about them in their life. I had one time somebody at the backside of an AAR to a really good attack in uh, 29 Palms. You know, I just told everybody I was proud of them. And I took one of the junior leaders aside and said, hey, yeah, you did a fantastic Fantastic job. I just want to tell you that. And hey, I love you, man. Thank you for being the type of Marine that you are. And he starts to well up. And I'm like, ooh, you know, now I'm getting a little bit uncomfortable. And I'm like, everything okay? He said, sir, that's the first time anybody's ever told me they love me. Wow. You know, because I grew up in Ozzie at Harrietville. You know, my parents, <laughs> 2.0 parents, dad hugging you every night, all that kind of stuff. And it's hard for me to imagine that at 20 years old, that had never occurred before. But I remember Bill Dabney, Hill 881 South, Navy Cross winner, married Chesty Puller's daughter. So how bold do you have to be to do that? Yeah. <laughs> he was a PNS. Professor of Naval Science at VMI, and we had him at a mess night, and he told me that I was second lieutenant, and he said, never forget that you may be the first positive male role model in these Marines' lives. Don't lose that opportunity to impact their life. And I'm not saying I've always done that. I've always tried. Mm -hmm. And I think what you learn is the moments, like when they're cleaning weapons, and you're just sitting in front of a guy punching a bore of an M16 and having a conversation. Those are the things about leading an organization that truly matter. It's like you don't take time to smell the roses. Those are the good opportunities you have to touch your soul. A lot of times we say, okay, well, the gunny can supervise that and I can go read email. Hey, read email at 20 hundred or whatever, but don't lose those opportunities to be around your Marines, to interact with them, to hear their stories, to ask them questions, to build rapport and trust and affection with them. And I think if you do that, the results of the organization will be far greater than you can achieve if you're directing everything with an iron hand. Now, you're still holding them to high standards, but they want to achieve those standards if, in fact, they believe in you. And so it's a two-way street. They're trying to establish your trust in them, and you're trying to establish their trust in you. And so that interaction is vital. And it it's more vital and needs more tactile touch points the lower the level is. And you need to spend more time. And our fault is, as a Marine Corps, we made it ergonomically more difficult to do that because everybody's got their own room. My platoon was all in one room. Right, squad bay. <laughs> yeah, they had a squad bay. My staff sergeant and I had an office in the squad bay. I could just roll out and go, Smith, come here. And our weapons were in a weapon rack in the middle of squad bay. And the gunny had the keys. And we could clean weapons anytime we wanted. And that was an activity. And, you know, you did collective activities. And then the Marines 
would go out together because that's how they did it. Nobody had a car. We've made it a lot more difficult to do some of that leadership, and that's what they all want. This is a generation that has the most connected, disconnected. They post everything. They want instant gratification of a like or retweet or something. But really what they're searching for is somebody to love, care about them, interact with them. And my criticism, if there is one, and this is a blanket because there's a lot of people doing it great, is that uniformly, we don't do that as well as we should. And maybe I'm looking at it in rose-colored rearview mirror glasses. Maybe we never did. But my sense is this generation wants it more because of how they have grown up. We need to give it to them. And I think if we did that with a concerted effort, our units would be better. There would be less destructive behavior of all types because I think Marines do this out of a misplaced desire to either numb their feelings that nobody's asked them about or nobody's helping them deal with in a positive way, or they're just, they kind of lose their way off the path of what the Eagle, Globe, and Anchor actually mean after they've got it. And so the transformation is really a four-year process. You get somebody through that first enlistment, either they leave or they re-enlist, and now they're, they're part of the institution, and they need to know how to do that to the younger people that they're bringing up. Now, I know we started on how do you identify people not doing it well, but that's really a key part of that, that I think you can look at a leader operating around the Marines, interacting with the Marines, and really quickly pick up of whether or not there's an affinity between the two. And if they're not, you need to probably, as a senior leader, ask why. Right. I'm going to make a statement that's not indicative of an executive level statement, but that last 15 minutes was probably one of the most fucking awesome 15 minute segments I've ever done in this podcast. (laughs) That was just fucking awesome. Thanks, sir. I I appreciate that. And all these questions that I had written down, they're all gone now because I just wrote down 15 new ones here as you were talking. Yeah, okay. Just awesome. A couple statements to keep us on track here. One is you were talking about how positive male influences, I mean, it could be any gender, right? But I know what you meant. And so when I was listening to you, I'm thinking about an officer and his Marines or her Marines. And then what dawned on me was it's also really important for leaders to understand that the officers in their command could have had the same exact upbringing that you just described. Right. Right. I mean, I know officers. I've had officers on this podcast who've talked about what a difficult childhood they had before they joined the Marine Corps. It's possible that that background could transcend rank. And that's probably a great thing for an officer to be aware of. Another thing that you said, sir, that was really awesome was we talked about you didn't say it like this. I'm saying it. But sometimes when you're leading a unit, doesn't matter what size it is. It is rare, so rare that it's probably close to non-existent that you will ever get any sort of indication from the people you're leading that you're doing a great job. You just never know. And you'll never probably ever know until later when you get those emails or those statements from people or the posts on social media. And I keep this thing, I call it my book of awesomeness, but really it's more of a digital file now where I will take screenshots of things that people say something on an email like that. And I'll tell leaders do that because that's when you know you are a good leader is when people seek you out afterwards. Like you were saying, they find you on LinkedIn or they say something to you or they talk about, hey, the things he said to me at 3.7 were really valuable. That's when you know that you're a good leader. You'll never know in the moment it will be afterwards when somebody comes back and says you really made an impact on my life 
That is really so true. And as you're saying that, take a screenshot or save the email. You know, I have done a little bit of that. And so my wife now, as I go through 40 years of pictures and mementos and things, is trying to consolidate them so that when I retire, she can show you that you, in fact, did make an impact, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and here's some letters people have written to you and said things about you. It all wasn't for nothing. You know, because when it ends, it ends and you kind of have a bad feeling that, God, I, I gave it all and it ended. Right. Well, it's always going to end. But it's hard in the moment to have perspective on that. But I think that's a great recommendation for leaders at all levels. And, you know, I remember one of my most cherished mementos is a letter written to me and put into a graduation announcement from the University of Berkeley or California at Berkeley of a Marine had served with me in 1-1, who I had reduced at one occasion and then put back in battery and given the opportunity to lead again. And then you, you know, you part your ways. He got out of the Marine Corps, went to college. I do my thing. And then you get this letter and he, you know, at this point, I'm a one-star general, but it's really like my first week or two in the Pentagon, which like is a horrible place (laughs) where I'm at right now. Well, it's like the Hotel California of duty stations. It's easy to get into, hard to get out of. Right. But uh, I opened this and this young man basically, he goes, this day would not have happened without your involvement in my life. Wow. And you're like, I still can't say it without getting, and I've said it a lot. I tell people about the story, but you get misty eyed. I'm misty eyed right now because I did not know that I was having that kind of impact on someone who would give me that. I mean, University of California, Berkeley is one of the five best schools in the United States. To graduate from there is a significant personal accomplishment. Mm-hmm. And to say that I had any part in getting you through there or that point in your life, when I was just trying to lead the organization and get it in and out of combat, you know, it's kind of overwhelming. But it's far greater. It means more to me than any medal on my chest because it's what we live for or should live for as leaders of Marines and sailors is that type of impact. Now, you're not going to impact everybody, but don't be dissuaded about that. Do the best you got. Give it your all. And you're going to touch a ton of people along the way. Mm -hmm. That's what's going to make your journey meaningful at the end. Yeah, I agree. So following question to that, you and I are roughly the same age. And so we grew up in an era where our peer groups will understand this. The younger ones won't <laughs> pre-name tapes on our camis, right? You didn't even know what somebody's last name was looking at him in uniform. Right. If you were going to correct a Marine walking down the street, you'd have to ask him to see his ID card to make sure he wasn't lying to you about his name. Right. I mean, those days. And so there was that interaction with the Marines. There was that component getting to know them that was important because you need to get to know their names. And you, you knew everybody in your platoon's name by name because yeah. you had to. And so our definition, our generation, sir, our definition of caring for Marines is one thing. And I'm wondering if you're starting to wonder now, does this current generation, and when I say current generation, I mean, like, let's just say 18 to 30, do they have a different definition of what it means for us to take care of them than maybe the 18 to 30 year old set had of our generation? Because you mentioned the social media and the likes and everything that's so formative. So the answer I give is maybe. I will tell you, one of the things I've learned is that that age cohort that you've described, one of the reasons that I think the lieutenants are so open to ask questions about us when we go down there as a three-star, which you and me would probably have never done. No way. I always tell people, I adhere to J.C. Hardy's admonition about never lose an opportunity to keep your mouth shut in front of a general officer. (laughs) 
basically until I became a general officer and it's harder to do that. But they don't look at us as like, hey, you're just there because you've got a lot of time in. It doesn't mean that you have any special characteristics that give you that authority. Yeah. Because the world is flat to them. Their information structures are flat. If they want to know something, they Google it, learn it, boom. And so this hierarchical structure where we pass down tribal knowledge, you've got to show your value to them. Because a lot of the Marines that you and I led, they just did it because they were told like the Nike commercial, just do it. I got it. You know, I don't need to know why. You got to start with why and then give them the purpose and the focus before you probably give them the mission or they're not going to be naturally inclined to quickly execute it. So I think leading them is more difficult and challenging now and not in a bad way. It's just different. But I I still believe because of how they have not interacted with other humans that once they learn the value of that kneecap to kneecap human interaction, they respond very well to it. Mm -hmm. And so, like, I'll just give you an example. You know, when I clicked off safe and, and did those things down second division, I mean, it became apparent that some units were not even having formations. And you're talking about the basic daily routine that we talked about in the last episode, right? Right. So organizations were just passing data on cell phones and we're getting together collectively once or twice a day minimum and just looking people in the eye and interacting with them. Well, I think that's counterproductive for people organizations that have to be very cohesive, especially at the point of contact. It's harder now to achieve that cohesiveness because we're more diverse now than we've ever been. And if you look at historic for the Spartans, the German army of the First World War. They were all recruited from the same town to make the building blocks organizations from the same region. Mm -hmm. They knew each other. Spartans all came from the same village. You know, they went through the same training. They were all uniformly alike. Those are easier organizations to cohere. When you have people of every confessional faith on the planet, every ethnic group possible, add gender now and sexual orientation, it's more difficult to lead that organization and make it cohere as one where it's going to have to act at the point of contact as one organism, right? Mm -hmm. So I believe the way you do that is by establishing far greater relationships into the chain of command and building leaders that understand that it's more difficult, that therefore create moments where there are more interactions and opportunities to get to know, to affect each person's journey, and then that builds the necessary coherence of the organization to be able to survive the point of contact. First of all, you got to explain all that because they're not naturally going to understand it. And once you do, though, and you tell them, this is why this is important. This is how I want you to do it. Here's the benefit of it. They'll buy into it. Now, a lot of people don't like, why is the CG explaining this? Well, I I am the leader of the organization. So if I want you to do it a certain way, I got to win that debate. Right. And so that's afterwards where I talk to every battalion and every sergeant above and then the whole organization to explain why I was doing what I was doing. You know, you sit there and talk to young Marines and all of a sudden you're watching a lot of guys nod their head like, okay, I get it now. Not that it was perfect and not that everybody agreed with me, but they gave it a chance. And I think over time it helped the organization. And you can do that like a fire team leader can do that far easier with just three people. Sure. Our organizational structure relies 
eyes on the corporal fire team leader and the sergeant squad leader and the lieutenant to actually do it better because that's the level of the organization that makes contact with the enemy. They have to be one team, one fight, more than any other aspect of the force. And we count on that because I can't institute that from a battalion or regimental or division level. It's got to be done at that level. Right. And so your job at the higher level is to educate and demonstrate and inspire them to do that work that achieves that outcome. You're right about this generation. It's so much more flat now because people are just sharing information. I know you're on LinkedIn. I've seen you on there. It's the digital medium, whatever network it is that you're using. People are just sharing information and communicating in much more of a flat way now than the hierarchical way that you and I grew up in. Right. And I think that's changed people's expectations from the way they're being led because they're just smart. They know things. They're not relying on that lieutenant to give them the word. They probably already know it. The other thing is they're not intimidated by anything on your collar. And so you got to prove yourself Mm -hmm. just like they got to prove theirs. They really, I'm not saying rank means nothing to them, but it's just, hey, you should know more. You've been in this organization 15 years. You know, show me you know more. And so I think Marines of our era just, you know, yes, sir. And, you know, moved on. And there is more to it now. It's more challenging. Therefore, I think your requirement to have your own grasp of what you're trying to accomplish, why it's important to do it a certain way and how that benefits and it helps you achieve the vision or end state that you're articulating. You got to tell them. You got to explain it to them. You got to work through that. They got to buy into that. Right. And if they do, you got a pretty powerful organization. Who are you mentoring now? Three-star general. Are you mentoring one and two stars? Are you mentoring colonels? What do you do for mentoring these days? I mentor anybody who wants to be mentored by me. I mean, I... (laughs) I know, but not everybody can walk into your office. You're a three-star general. I think the, the important thing is... You got to make time for that, no matter if you're a three-star general. So if anybody wants to come by and talk to me, I'm like, hey, get them in here. Yeah. I'll talk to anybody. I mean, I've got people that I've worked with, you know, they'll email me, hey, sir, I just need 15 minutes of your time. Yeah, absolutely. I'll get them on the schedule. They come in, we we set up a phone call, or I go see them. Yeah, a lot of them now are one and two-star generals that have come up and I've worked with and served alongside and mentored before. But, you know, some of them are sergeants that, you know, I work with. Sure. I try to pay it forward by giving them the tribal knowledge of somebody that's been in the tribe for a while. And that's why I was never a fan of like, you are so-and-so's mentor. Mentorship's very personal and people got to want to be mentored to be mentored. Mm -hmm. You can't really assign that. That's got to be a natural outgrowth of interactions of where you either command it or people see you and say, I like that. I want to learn from that. And then they reach out and you say, sure, I'll, you know, but as a senior leader in the Corps, it's your obligation to try to impact as many people as possible. And, you know, what I talk to two stars and one stars about is, hey, look, you've got a requirement sometimes to tell people things they are not going to want to hear. Don't shy away from that. Don't worry about being common on. Most of us won't mm-hmm. ever achieve that. It's not a validation that you did a great job or not. It's sometimes it's just happenstance and quicksilver that strikes at the right time don't worry about it do what's right stand up for what you believe in tell your bosses information you know they need no matter if they want to hear it or not right and then let the chips fall where they may i can walk away from this institution and shave every morning liking the person staring back at me in the mirror At the end of the day, when you're sitting on the back porch with your scotch glass and the ice is melting and you're looking in there, 
What you want to know is that you did it right. You want to know that you prepared your organizations, your Marines, for every challenge that they faced. And quite frankly, you did it the best of your abilities, and the enemy gets a vote, and that's what happens. It's not your fault. And so you can live with some of the outcomes that didn't go your way along the way and, and cause Marines to uh, lose their life in the prosecution of operations that you were part of. If you didn't do it right, if you didn't train them as hard as you could, if you didn't take those opportunities to say to your boss, we shouldn't be doing this for this reason, mm -hmm. you may not be able to have those conversations with yourself and then you'll be haunted. And I don't think that's the way you want to live your life after the core. So leave it all on the field. Tell people things they don't want to hear. That's the information they actually need. And I'm not going to lie to you and say that that will make you endeared by the organization all the time. Mm -hmm. It won't. No, you're right. But that's okay. Again, it hasn't been about you since the first day you put that bar on your collar. Right. And I reflect back and you talk about the mirror looking in the scotch glass. I don't regret a single time I ever spoke up and gave my opinion on something that was maybe counter. I don't think I can think of a time where I said, geez, I really wish I didn't say that. If I have any regrets, it's, geez, I really wish I had said something. Over time, especially, you know, when you understand that this business will expend human life and that's going to happen and you want to have done it right before that occurs so that you can be at peace with that. Right. Because if not, I don't know how you shut your eyes at night. Yeah. I think you speak up, you say your piece. If somebody doesn't agree with you, you take the loss, you take the L and you move on. As long as it's not in combat and it's costing lives. But you're right. It's it's not about you and you've got to speak up and say things. I know plenty of people's careers who have ended for doing what they thought was the right thing to do. And I'll bet you that nine out of 10 of those were probably the right thing to do. And they, like you said, they weren't endeared for it is a way to say it. That's a great segue into a question to ask you, sir. It's a little bit of an oddball question. So give me some artistic license here. But what's the best lesson that you ever learned from the worst leader you ever saw? No names, of course, just... Well, yeah, yeah, no, like... <laughs> you know, first of all, I've been extremely fortunate that I really haven't had any bad leaders. I've had some that were better than others and some that I enjoyed more than others, but I didn't really have bad leaders. And when I talk about a bad leader, a toxic leader that only thinks about themselves, not the organization, not the people under them, mm -hmm. I've never worked for somebody like that. So I've seen those guys from maybe afar, but I am a compilation of a lot of very good leaders where you pick and choose traits and try to emulate and model. There were people that over-supervised to the point of getting in your way of executing the, you know, hey, give me the mission, give me the resources, let me achieve it. And if I'm screwing it up, then you can intervene. But if not, let me, we can talk about it afterwards. Mm -hmm. But it's like, well, no, I don't want you to do it that way. Well, okay, well, you do it. I've had some people like that, not many. And that's not being a bad leader. It's just it's the method is not as enjoyable. My point is, about that is let people have latitude because if it's their way to accomplish your mission, they're normally more committed to it because it's their idea. They will put more energy behind that. And as long as there's an understanding between intent and task, you're going to accomplish it. It just may be a way that you didn't envision. And that's not a bad thing. You can talk about it afterwards. That's difficult, especially in today's world where you have like visibility to levels you never had visibility to. So I think the feeling that you felt by that happening to you has probably made me more hands off. 
than a lot of people. And where we are at right now, like how does a three-star demonstrate that? Well, it's like, hey, sir, the brief is ready to go to the commandant. We want you to look at it. I'm like, you good with it? Yes, sir. Send it. You do that. Oh, I do it because there's too many briefs. Okay. <laughs> look, if like Roger Turner thinks, you know, who's going to be three MEF commander here in the summer, thinks that it's good to go, what am I going to do? <laughs> Great point. Yeah, sure. I didn't like it when people puppied the small dog my stuff. I'm not going to do it to somebody else. Now, a lot of times I'll scan it. Yep, it's good. Or I haven't seen it and we're looking at it and I'm like, yeah, I probably wouldn't have said it like that. I'm not going to say that then. Sure. You know, you go afterwards and say, hey, on when you're talking about this this way, do it in this manner because that's how it's understood at these various levels. And they're like, okay, sir. And then, you know, but great brief. Thanks. Right. Good job. That's probably also an answer to the question I asked before about like, how are you mentoring? Who are you mentoring? You just said it. When you're at this level and you're imparting your experience at a three-star level to somebody who's hopefully going to be there someday too. And it's a huge part of mentoring. Right. Like I didn't really send many emails when I was a CG, second division. Like I'd go around and see something that I didn't like. I would just, I would take no, you know, units and names off and say, look, like walking around today, I saw these things, you know, here's what I saw that was really good, sustain. We need to correct things like this. Mm -hmm. Boom, to everybody in the force. But again, when you're a CG, you're dealing with colonels who've been, in some cases, board selected three times to be commanders from Major Lieutenant Colonel Colonel. They're good commanders. Let them command. Right. Let them command. Now, they're not going to always do it the way you would do it. You'd have these discussions like, hey, you know, if you disagree with anything I'm telling you, tell me and let's have a discussion. Don't just drag your feet after I've told you to do something and make it more difficult to achieve my intent because you don't really believe in it. Right. Like, let's have that discussion up front and either I can modify what I told you to do or we can come to some agreement, but I'll hear you out. But at the end of the day, if I say, look, I understand your concerns, I still need you to do it. And with this much vigor, can you execute? Yeah, I got it. And then you move out on it. Those are discussions you have to have. I mean, inserting yourself afterwards and kind of trying to steer the organization or people who've been command selected three times doesn't really go well. Like I've had that happen along the way. And probably the reason I don't like it is when I'm a major recruiting station CEO in Central California, my boss is in San Diego. He's like 600 miles away. I never saw him. Mm -hmm. If I need a resource, I asked for it. If I got it, I employed it. I had a mission. You achieve it. Bingo. I mean, it's like, what don't you understand about achieving? the mission. So it builds over time. That experience is like, just give me the resource and the mission. Let me go. Right. I don't want a lot of direction. I might like, I'd never ask for direction. I might get some and I want to be able to look at a problem with a fresh set of eyes collectively with my team. Here's the way we're going to solve it. Everybody got it. Okay, let's go. And then boom. And so at every level, you want other people to mirror that with their subordinate organization. So you're creating a team that can do this like across the spectrum of what you're being asked to do. And I've had that experience with other, like I was going to walk a legitimate op order and needed a signature and the CG just went, is it good? Send it. Didn't look at it. Yeah. So that tells me, trust me, I'm going to work harder for that guy. Right. I have a question for you. And the answer, I'm asking the question in a specific way because I want the answer to be directed at senior enlisted. Here's an off-the-wall question for you. If you were selected for an imaginary program 
called the General to Sergeant Major One-Year Exchange Program. And you were selected by the Commandant. And he came down and said, Dave, I got something for you. You're going on an exchange tour. You're going to be a Sergeant Major for a year or two, whatever. I'm making this up. And you turn in your stars. You put on the Sergeant Major chevrons and you get assigned as your choice, SEL or you know battalion or something like that. What what would Sergeant Major Furness be like? And based on your experience, what would you go back and craft Sergeant Major Furness to be like? And what would be like three things that you'd say, hey, based on my experience, here's the things that I would focus on as a Sergeant Major. Well, first of all, first thing I would do is sit down with the boss and say, let's define what you want me to work on mm-hmm. and define the relationship because there's no definition of So it basically is left up to the leader, you know, the sergeant major and the officer to figure out. So sit down and have that conversation right up front. Okay. Get it kind of in writing, like write down. Okay. I want you to do these 26 things. Okay. That's what I'll work on. Sir, how would you prioritize those? Okay. Boom, 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 boom. Okay. Got it. Now I've got a roadmap. And then what I would recommend that the sergeant major do is like, look, sir, I've got to impact those people through my enlisted chain, okay? And tell them, this is how I intend to do it. Are you okay with this? And I really believe that my role for you is providing very competent, disciplined, good leaders throughout the chain of command that can execute your intent. And here's how I'm gonna do that. I will focus on individual and organizational discipline because I believe it's the foundation which everything else grows from. And I believe staff NCOs are best positioned to handle. And so you're going to see me walking around. Hey, come here. What about this? What about that? You know, I'm going to be Mr. Corrected Man. And over time, what that should do is you start correcting less and less because the chain is out doing that, which is how it's supposed to work, but infrequently does. And so you don't have to worry about all these little nitnoid things. What that should eventually produce is greater attention to detail to the things that always bite organizations in the butt. Mm -hmm. You know, you should see improved maintenance because we're actually pulling the books out to do motor stables by the numbers. We're going to get into GCSS Marine Corps and execute it appropriately. We're going to do reconciliations, you know, boom. Those are all the things that a disciplined culture that flows from it that then infects the execution in a positive way to make you better at like more vehicles work. You can take them to training. You're spending less time with stuff that that is not working. And then in the field, I'm going to be the person on noise discipline, light discipline, camouflage and concealment. Hey, why is the water bowl out where everybody can see it? Drag it back here, put a net over it. You know, those are the things I do for you. You do the mastermind and I'm worried about the execution. Right. Because I've got first sergeants and gunnies and staff sergeants and sergeants and corporals that are doing that too. And I'm teaching them, this is what you look for. This is how it needs to be done. Make it happen. Patting them on the back when they do it great, pulling them aside saying mm, up your game when they're not so i think those are the conversations the team should have and then hey i've been doing this a long time too you want to bounce an idea off me i'm a sounding board i will tell you exactly what i think about it right would you do that exchange tour if it was offered to you 
Oh, hell yeah. Yeah, I think it would be kind of fun. I don't know if I'd be that good at it, you know, because I haven't grown up in that lane. But the role of the sergeant major, the first sergeant, the company gun and the staff, it's absolutely essential. That teamwork between officer and senior enlisted, you know, platoon commander, platoon sergeant, company commander, first sergeant gunny, battalion sergeant major, master guns of the organization at the battalion level. It's critical to making sure things are being executed the way the Marine Corps expects them to be executed. And you tell them, I'm a decision maker. I see a problem. I identify it. I fix it. I tell you about it later. Right. I know what your intent is. If you want a high tempo performing organization, you got to be able to do that. But you only do that through many repetitions of going out there and fixing stuff, tweaking stuff, making sure people are doing it right. Then you can see something may do this and you're a decision maker. Right. All those people, even though they're in the chain of command and they're not the leader, they are a leader. And their job is if you see something gone wrong, don't admire the problem. Don't ignore it. Fix it. If you want to build you know, trust and you want to build respect and you want more leash, start being a guy or gal that fixes problems and informs later and improves execution. You're invaluable to any organization. Yes. Civilian organizations want that same exact thing. Right. Somebody said something to me the other day that kind of defines everything he just said, which was I was having a conversation with an enlisted Marine and, and he said, you know, an officer's job is to make sure that we're doing the right thing. The staff and CO's job is to make sure we're doing that thing right. That's a great way to put it. It's like, boom, there you go. So we've got about 15 minutes left, sir. And this is your second interview. You're getting ready to retire. Ask yourself a question and answer it for me. Just take the next 15 minutes and talk about anything leadership. You mentioned Blackjack Matthews at the end of our last conversation. You talked about what a great Marine he was. Like maybe talk about him a little bit or anything that you kind of just want to riff on. Okay. Well, I've been toying with this idea that, you know, you've got force design 2030, you got talent management 2030, you got training education 2030. I really think we need leadership 2030 to operationalize these disparate lines of effort. And the reason I said that, we've touched on a lot of it throughout the presentation. It's a more difficult leadership environment today than it was 40 years ago. Like I know JD did tie buckle is still a foundation that people have to understand. Mm -hmm. It's like laying a good cement pad that you're going to build any kind of building or uh, on. But the rest of the building is way more complex. And so if you agree with my assertion that we have a more diverse force than 40, 50 years ago, if because of that diversity, there are challenges with coherence, then we have to educate our Marines to be able to lead in that environment and lead these Marines and understand how to do that in a more fulsome way. So the the way we teach leadership now is you go traits and characteristics when you're at boot camp or the basic school, and then it's largely by osmosis and observation for the rest of your time. Mm -hmm. Like even when you go to PME courses, we focus more on hard skills and we do the squishy, ill-defined subject of leadership. And I think we need to tell people or teach them, okay, first, most important thing, a personal connection to another human being. This is how you do this. Because it's not intuitive. It may have been intuitive 40 years ago because you made friends by talking to people, asking them questions, back and forth. But that's not the way people interact anymore. And so most Marines that I've watched or observed in the last 10 years are not as comfortable doing that and lack the like hard skills. One of the things we were going to do, we got canceled by COVID, was bring in the Marine Corps Recruiting Command's National Training Team to teach how you build 
build rapport. Recruiters have to do this because before you're going to sign and make a life-altering decision, you kind of have to have a relationship really quickly with a recruiter to trust them and what he's telling you to be able to say, okay, this is something I see myself doing. I want to do it. Okay, where, where do I sign? And so building rapport is the first step in establishing the relationship that then allows you to create the leadership environment where this person and then the multitude will flourish. So I think what we have to do is take like the Lejeune Leadership Institute and operationalize it and say, okay, what's the POIs at every step in the way? They probably need to have training teams probably more than one, that go out and assess how these things are being executed, but also help people develop leader development programs at the company battalion, regimental level, throughout the force. And then we, you know, the POIs have got to complement because the leadership you need to get taught at command and staff of the War College, you got things to learn about leadership. The leadership you need to be taught at the War College is different than the leadership you need to be taught at the basic school, but but it's just as important. Mm-hmm. And so we need to break it down in digestible pieces. And the same kind of leader, you know, ethical decision games and leadership development decision games and things along the way need to be, you need to do that. Now, there's a tactical piece to that because you're an operator too, but you're a complex organizational leader. How do you train them to be better? And right now, we leave it up to the individual's kind of, you know, search out of, uh, you know, books he can read from Amazon. And then you're largely left to your own curiosity. And we do a lot of it by observing, but we can translate good TTPs. They're out there. We can, at the higher levels, you can bring people in like Simon Sinek, and you can hear them talk about it. You can review TED Talks on this. And I think it's important, you know, like one of the things I did at EDWS, for the one year I was a director there was we all read the book Wooden on Leadership. Okay. And Wooden's got this triangle of how to build an elite organization. And I said, what your challenge is, is build your own triangle. You know, marinize that for you. You're all going to be leaving here, going to be company commanders. What does this mean to you? And we had several discussions about the book. It was all designed because what I saw was if that company commander was an elite leader, that was an elite organization below him. If he was average, it was average. So raising the leadership abilities of all these captains who we're going to educate for a year. And I brought in leaders every Friday to talk to them. That was what I did. But the Marine Corps should do that. Okay. And that's why I call it Leadership 2030. I mean, realizing we're a more diverse force, realizing that we have pressures on leaders now that did not exist 40 years ago. Mm -hmm. The same requirements, though, to cohere a force and be able to employ it to point of contact, influence it, inspire it, move it in a positive direction under immense difficulty and challenging conditions, that is still required. The way you do it, we should principally kind of break it down to component parts and teach people, educate people, train people to do that better. And I think if you believe And I do that modern war, the character of it is forcing greater dispersion on the forces because of the precision of the weapons and the ubiquity of the sensors. And now anything that can be sensed can be killed. You're going to have to have smaller units spread over greater distances, require better leadership in more places than ever before. Yeah, that's the problem statement. How do you make sure that the corporal sergeant are doing things and making leadership calls that maybe weren't made until you were a battalion? 
battalion commander, 15, 16, 17 years in the service. Now this person has five. How are you arming them or creating success for that? Right. I don't think we're systematic enough in doing that. And that's what I'm trying to get my head around. I mentioned it to the commandant. He said, put some meat on that bone and get back to me. So I'm like, okay. <laughs> you walked into that one. <laughs> I walked into an AO ambush of my own creating. Right. I just think there's something there. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to look for the best way to articulate it. Yeah. Actually, I think this discussion today has helped me and give me some ideas. So, and I also believe, and we probably can end with this, the most important element of combat power is leadership. And it's one of these things we always give us uh, relative combat power assessment. We always give an advantage in leadership to us. We're better leaders than anybody else. Check plus for the Marine Corps. Is that true? Is it true in all cases? Is it part of how you instill excellence in an organization? Like organizational excellence is always there, institutionalized by the way you train, educate, mentor leadership throughout the entire continuum. And after you become a general, there's still stuff that you know, I don't think Capstone or Pinnacle or any of the... Now, Leadership at the Peak was a great course that I went to, but you can always be teaching. You can never be too good a leader. And there are some foundational aspects. And I really think, you know, empathy, humility, the care between two individuals, we got to articulate that some way and we don't now normally. Right. Brits have a leadership trait called cheerfulness. I think that's important as well. That's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. And they define it as, you know, a gleam in their eye, a crack of a joke and dire conditions that elevates the morale of the force. Right. And I tell people, hey, when it's 32 degrees out raining and you're soaking wet and freezing, I don't need to know that. We all know that. Right. Don't focus on that. I need people that are going to be uplifting during those kind of conditions. Yeah. Some levity. Some levity, some positive mental emotions that can be transmitted through the force. And so there are additional characteristics that I think we can use along the way to help build better leaders more predictably as an organization that will help operationalize the things we're trying to do in those three other very important lines of effort. Well, your contribution today and your previous episode, as well as all my other guest episodes, I think are helping out with that leadership 2030 idea. I do think the more people can share their ideas and you have certainly shared some great ones. Thank you so much. Really appreciate all of your time, sir. I will mention as an ending here, I'm in the middle of reading this book called Turn the Ship Around by Captain David Marquette. He's a the USS Santa Fe submarine. I've not read it, but I've seen the book. Sir, I'm telling you, like... I can't put it down. It's so good. And I was just telling a friend of mine, I just, I wish I read that when I was a lieutenant. Right. It's so good. Anyway, I don't want to conclude on that, but I want to tell you, sir, thank you so much, not only for your time today and your time on the previous podcast, but for your entire time in the United States Marine Corps, having people like you stewarding such a fine and storied organization, it's commendable. And I am personally happy to see people like you have stayed in and done everything that you've done to keep us the finest fighting force on the face of the earth. Well, thank you, Dave. It's been a privilege to be in this organization. You know, one of the things you worry about is I will miss 
the Marines and sailors that you get to interact with every day because they have inspired me for 37 years to give it my best. So you wonder whether you're going to get that inspiration someplace else. They'll still stay in touch with you. They will. It's part of our soul. Well, I appreciate the kind words. Thank you. Thank you. Well, sir, this is Lieutenant General David Furness. Moments in Leadership, sir. Thanks again for all of your time and really appreciate it. And I look forward to staying in touch with you even after you retire. And if you retire around the area, please let me know. Yeah, we're uh, to June, Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, 1700. If you want to be there, let me know. I'll send you an invite. Please do. I will be there. That would be great. So, okay. Thanks again for your time, sir. Yep. You're welcome. Thank you.